Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Duke Law Professor and Bioethicist Nita Farahani says we're rapidly heading toward a world of so-called brain transparency, when scientists, governments, corporations, our employers will have the ability to peer into our minds at will. This hour, we'll learn about the neurotechnology that's collecting our brain data, learning to translate it into what we're seeing, thinking, feeling, and already being deployed in some cases. And we'll hear why Farahani thinks we need to establish a right to mental privacy. Her new book is The Battle for Your Brain. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Hackers who can install brain spyware into apps and devices we're using. Advertisers that can interface with our minds to know the products we crave, even before we do. These things won't all happen tomorrow, but Duke Law Professor Nita Farahani says it's not far off. She says we need to figure out how to keep control of our mental privacy and fast. Her new book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Welcome to Forum, Nita. It's so nice to be back with you. It's really great to have you on. So why do we need to figure this out fast? How and where are our brains already being tracked? Well, amazingly, in so many different ways, our brains are already being tracked and hacked by algorithms and by increasingly precise ways of being able to infer what we're thinking. But what this book is about is the next generation of what has already arrived and is going to go widespread. Mm -hmm. Um, People are used to wearing things like heart rate sensors and Fitbits that track their steps, even rings that track their temperature and other aspects that quantify their bodily functions. But most people don't imagine that you could do the same with your brain functioning. But already there are devices on the marketplace that enable you to do so. And what's coming is a coming age of much more widespread consumer brain wearables where there are sensors that are inside of your earbuds and your headphones and even watches that can pick up brain activity, electrical activity in your brain and decode what that means and then use that both for you personally for a lot of insights about the inner workings of your own mind and brain health But once you open up access to yourself, you also are opening up access to companies and employers and governments. Yes, you pinpoint that the workplace is one setting where brain surveillance is already happening. What are some examples? Yeah, so this was one of the things that surprised me the most, I think, as I started to dive into research for my book. So 
you know, for more than a decade, there is a company that's by the name of SmartCap that has been selling um, a headband that can be uh, embedded inside of a hard hat or a baseball cap that has little electrodes, dry sensors that um, can pick up brain activity. And, and these have been used by companies who want to monitor commercial drivers or miners or pilots for fatigue levels. And right now, they're only extracting very limited information from the brain. That is, they have an algorithm that interprets what they pick up and picks out just fatigue levels on a score from one to five. But the data that they're picking up, um, when used by the other different products and applications that are coming to the market, enable decoding a lot more than just the uh, fatigue levels. You can track uh, attention levels, for example, whether a person is paying attention or their mind is wandering, if they're bored, if they're engaged with their work, even what they're paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these neurotech companies are marketing enterprise solutions to enable employers to start tracking all of these metrics in the workplace. Um, and I worry about uh, what that means for the broadening surveillance in the workplace and really how detrimental that could be for the dignity of work. Yes, you raise such important things. A couple of questions that immediately come to mind are, can employees determine whether they want to wear these headbands or or is there pressure? Is it voluntary? I'm so curious. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's so difficult, right? Um, We traditionally, at least in the U.S., think of employment as at-will employment. That's the kind of terminology people use. And the idea is that if you don't like some practice, and if it doesn't violate some existing laws that are happening in the workplace, you should just quit and go work elsewhere. But as surveillance in the workplace has become so much more widespread, I think more than 80% of companies during the pandemic said that, um, or during the height of the pandemic, said that they either are already using different surveillance tools for productivity, like keystroke logging, or, you know, looking at all the different applications that somebody is using and how much time they spend on it on their computers. More than 80% of companies said that they already are doing it or they plan to do it soon. Um, And so, you know, using these tools in that way and using brain surveillance in that way um, may not be so voluntary if both everyone is doing it, but also if there aren't laws that prohibit employers from requiring it. And there doesn't seem to be any laws other than in a few states that have, for example, limitations on the collection of biometric data from employees. And in those cases, it usually just requires the employer to notify the employee that it is happening and what data they're collecting, um, not really giving employees a choice of, you know, continuing to work at that same place and using or not using those devices. Do you know if California is one of those few states? California is one of those few states that has more robust privacy legislation as well as specific regulations around um, the collection and use and particularly misuse of biometric data by employees. But again, it, it really... It doesn't say you can't collect the data. It says that you have to limit it to job-related collection, and you have to notify clearly in um, advance of, you know, for employees what data you're collecting and why, and you know, include it within employee handbooks, for example. So, even the states like California that are much more progressive don't really give employees a right to mental privacy, for example. So it's not that it's off limits for employers to collect the information. They just have to do so according to a set of rules and regulations that, you know, give employees that notification that it's happening. 
Hmm. Well, let me invite our listeners to join the conversation. Nita Farahani is our guest today. She says we're at a pivotal moment in human history in which control of our brains can be enhanced or lost. And I, I want to ask you listeners if you have questions or concerns about the developing neurotechnology that Nita Farahani is describing. Do you see it as being costly? Do you see it as being beneficial? Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Nita, I'm so curious how the neurotechnology that, that actually currently exists can can do this like a, a band mm-hmm. in a cap. You mm-hmm. can get that much potentially useful data on our brain waves from electrodes attached to our heads or touching our heads, essentially? Yeah. No, it's a great question. So um, first, I should say, you know, there's a limited amount of information that you can get uh, just by surface-based, what we call dry electrodes. Those are electrodes that are sitting on the scalp. You have interference with muscle twitches and eye twitches and even hair that can mean the contact isn't that good. Um, that's part of why a lot of the manufacturers of these devices, um, that and the what I'll call the form factor, you don't really want to go around wearing a silly-looking headband across your forehead, um, have been moving to embed these electrodes into earbuds or headphones, like the soft cups that go around your ears that make better contact with the skin mm. and can pick up brain activity. And they pick up some, not all, right? If you had like an implanted uh, set of electrodes in your brain, which you know f- about 40 people in the world do for, for medical reasons, you could pick up a lot more. But you can pick up enough. And as the electrodes and the hardware have gotten much better over the past decade, as the ways that you can tell through software if there is good contact or not and then shift it to make sure you have a good fit, and is the power of algorithms to be able to decode large patterns in data or large data sets um, have just vastly and rapidly improved the what we call signal noise, how much you can pick up and um, how, how good the information is that you can extract has just rapidly um, and intensely increased. You still can't pick up like what a person is thinking literally in their head, but you can pick up a lot of brain states, you know, are you happy or sad? Are you paying attention? Um, and then you can pick up a lot of reactions, such as uh, the the brain can be probed for recognition of information. And that means that you can get access, uh, you know, as a company who is behind the software, or the, the hardware, to a lot more information than we might think from the human brain. Wow, incredible. You've also pointed out how companies have used basically wellness and health and trying to provide that to to their employees as a way of not necessarily having them do it, but but just as the rationale behind tracking these things. So on the surface, it sounds like it's beneficial. Mm -hmm. But what are your concerns with that? So, you know, it's interesting to trace, I'm not a historian, but I would love a historian to do, you know, a deep dive into tracing how a lot of different technologies get normalized, for example, over time. Um, And most of the time it's with beneficial uses. And one ways that employers have really started to normalize both the use of neurotechnology, but also getting into the heads of their employees is by offering um, as part of their wellness programs, brain wellness programs. We all know that stress levels are increasing worldwide and that 
depression and other mental illnesses are increasing, even while our overall physical health improves, our brain health is not improving. And so as part of these programs, employers have been offering, you know, everything from guided meditations using neurotechnology to, um, you know, trying to do things to improve cognitive performance. What I worry about with these programs is that they're not governed under the traditional health information. So if you go to your doctor, um, even if you have work-issued health insurance, your employer can't get access to the private information that you share with your doctor. But if you're doing a battery of cognitive tests in the workplace and you, uh, for example, disclose or it's discoverable through the use of neurotechnology that you're suffering from depression or um, neurological disease or earliest stages of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, under these wellness programs, none of that is treated as health information. It's all fair game for employers to get access to it. And they're already using and in some cases commodifying and selling that data or using it to peer into um, what's happening with their employees. And I worry about that kind of treasure trove of data, you might say, for employers that they shouldn't have access to, that they could misuse in ways that would be discriminatory and problematic for employees. Yes. And again, if it's your employer, there is often this question of um, what what is truly voluntary and what right. is not. I mean, that's right. When people say you should just go quit, you know, it's like that assumes everybody has the, the you know, ease of upward mobility and ability to shift between jobs. That's just not the case for most people. Again, Nita Farahani's book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. And we'll have more with her and you, our listeners, after the break, 866-733-6786, the number, forum at kqed.org, the email address. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about neurotechnology and the advances in it that could allow corporations, the government, to peer into our brains and minds. And we're talking about the need to defend the right to think freely, which is the subtitle of Nita Farahani's book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. You, our listeners, are sharing questions about the developing neurotechnology, concerns if you have them, or maybe you're hoping and seeing them as beneficial. What aspects of your brain's inner workings are you 
comfortable with sharing. 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org, the email address, at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Wendy writes, I've always wanted to record my dreams, but knowing that this information could be used against me by some future government would scare the hell out of me. <laughs> you do talk a little bit about dreams in your book. Uh, did you want to say a little bit about where, <laughs> where that's gone? Well, that's the creepy side of it. Let me, let me first <laughs> respond to her very, very nice message, which is... Um, you know, first, there there's fascinating research in, in neurotech uh, with functional magnetic resonance imaging. This is like large machines while people are dreaming and being able to decode the visual imagery in their mind. It's really amazing how much we can already do uh, in neuroscience. And I say we, it's not me, it's the neuroscientist, right? I just got to study and opine about it. But um, but the, the creepy side of it, and I, I don't want to scare her away from being able to learn more about her dreams, is... Um, one of the things that I write about in the book is this idea of dream incubation, where advertisers have teamed up with dream researchers um, to see if they could cultivate feelings about particular products. And so here's the example, which is Coors really wanted to figure out, since they had repeatedly been shut out of the halftime show at, at, for the um, Super Bowl, if they could nevertheless get volunteers to sleep and then in the periods where they wake up where their brains are the most suggestible to be able to um, get them to think about streams and mountains associated with cores like it's refreshing and to create this kind of positive association and they found if they played these soundscapes while a person was sleeping and then asked them about their dreams during that suggestible state and use that suggestible state to try to plant these concepts that seem to be effective. Now, it's not so creepy in the studies. Those are all volunteers who went into, you know, with fully informed consent to undergo these studies. Where my brain goes with this is thinking about the possibility of using in-ear earbuds that are designed to track your sleep activity while you, um, you know, go through the different phases of sleep that can tell when you're in this suggestible state. And then with all the devices we have in our home from, you know, uh, Amazon Echo to to Google and uh, even cell phones that people keep next to their beds, that somehow those things interact and you have a soundscape that's played that starts to manipulate and change your thoughts without your consent. And, you know, so I see the kind of dystopian possibilities of looking into dreams and recollection of dreams, but also the ability to incubate and change people's minds without their consent. And I I worry a lot about that. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller James in Oakland next. Hi, James, you're on. Ah, Hi, how you doing? So my question is, I I watched um, a series and it was about uh, Stephen Hopkins and people like him who They used to be able to communicate with their eyes um, by uh, looking at the letters. But Mm -hmm. now they had this cap on this person's brain, and now the person can think of the word, and the word will appear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how far along is that? And also (laughs) where they they had a guy who lost his limb, his arm, and he's able to, uh, 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 what do you call it, a robotic hand, and they put a gadget to his temple and connected also to his arm, so mm-hmm. it can have a connection. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, how intrusive yeah. is those type of things? 
Well, it's a great I mean, how question. How far along are they? Yeah, James, and, and he's reminding me, Nita, we, we had um, scientists at UCSF on doctors mm-hmm. who were helping someone who had been paralyzed in an accident who was mm-hmm. able to use the brain to be able to then have words. It was embedded actually within the brain. Um, mm-hmm. yep. and, yeah, and then able to have words that he was thinking show up on a screen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that technology is incredible and so powerful. I write about it in uh, the chapter, which I called Beyond Human, in the book. Uh, First, I'll say, just a few weeks ago, there was uh, a a research study that reported that an ALS patient with implanted neurotechnology, so not not surface-based electrodes, not the consumer brain sensors that I'm talking about, but much more, you know, high-resolution, high-fidelity kind of information, kind of electrodes, they were able to communicate at a rate of 62 words per minute, even though they had otherwise lost the ability to communicate because of their advanced ALS. And that's by contrast to Stephen Hawking, who I think at the end of his life, even with the best technology trained on him, but it wasn't, again, brain-computer interface technology, could only communicate at 15 words per minute. Much of his life, it was only at one word per minute. So that's amazing. And when it comes to implanted technology, um, they're making rapid advances in what's called speech prosthesis. When it's wearable sensors, this is one of the things that really triggered me to write the book. There was a company called Control Labs that was doing a demonstration at a conference that I attended in 2018. And their goal was to take neural interface at the wrist taking um, electrical activity as it travels from your brain down your arm to your wrist. um, And as you do something like type, can decode that activity. And eventually you could type on a virtual keyboard or just think about typing through wearable brain sensors. That company was acquired by Meta in 2019, and they're planning on launching a watch in early 2025 as the interface with their augmented reality. And um, they believe that they'll get to the place Uh, pretty quickly where they can enable people to think about moving and swiping and typing and being able to type by thinking about doing so. So it's right around the corner for people to be able to um, have their intentionally communicated speech decoded. And I say intentionally because um, it's what you mean to communicate with the outside world. It's harder to decode what your inner monologue is. Wow. And now Meta slash Facebook. <laughs> yeah. And now Meta slash Facebook can know what you um, are intending to type and swipe. And yeah, I, I write a lot about my concerns about, you know, the corporate commodification of this data. And, you know, especially, you know, this isn't small niche neurotech companies. It's all of the major tech titans who've really rushed to the field and who are acquiring the neurotechnology are developing it in-house and they're integrating it into their everyday technology. And it was Mark Zuckerberg, I, I think, who said that he sees neural interface as the holy grail um, of our interactions with all of the rest of our technology. And I, I kid that it is the holy grail of of data commodification for corporations <laughs> because once they can decode what's in the brain, you know, what, what better than that for companies who are trying to micro-target products to you or change how you think about them? Yeah. Well, Lucy writes, as a former refugee from what had been a repressive communist Czechoslovakia in Eastern Europe, my first thought is how this technology will be exploited by repressive regimes. Mm -hmm. Imagine how the enforcers in Putin's Russia, she's China, Erdogan's Turkey, or Iran would use this against protesters in interrogations, perhaps to break down political detainees or their relatives. Scary. At a minimum, I'd love to have the UN decide what uses 
would be against the Geneva Convention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nita, I know part of your interest in this concept or or the need to be able to assert mental privacy is informed by your experience as an Iranian-American with extended family still living in Iran. Yes, absolutely. I, I share the anxieties that um, your listener just shared. And, uh, you know, I, I write about that as well because, you know, my my parents came to the United States in 1969 intending to go back to Iran um, after my father c- completed his educational training here in the United States, but then the revolution happened, and all of their extended family, all of my extended family, remained behind, subject to significant persecution um, at the time. And you know, over the years, in communicating with all of my family who lives there, they self-censor in nearly every instance. They're always afraid of. Uh, whether it's their phone calls or their text messages or any other form of communication being under surveillance by the state and they're afraid to say the wrong thing or any kind of politically dissident thing. You know, as the recent demonstrations have been happening, they are afraid to share their opinions about it or what's happening. And, And in the hands of, you know, this kind of repressive or authoritarian regimes, I fear exactly that. And we're already seeing some evidence of that out of China who has mandated the use of neurotechnology in everywhere from educational settings to for young children to workplaces. And there are even reports that they have started to interrogate people's brains for um, their political ideology, for their uh, you know emotional reactions to political statements by the Communist Party. And you know that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so I, I very much share those same concerns and you know, the idea that the UN should act, I agree with. In fact, that's part of my proposal uh, for how we move forward for this, how we how we recognize what could be very empowering technology, but try to safeguard it for appropriate uses is by recognizing international human rights to cognitive liberty. And ideally, that would really limit this kind of interference with the freedom of thought of individuals by governments. Yeah. Well, let me go to caller Suzanne in Oakland. Hi, Suzanne, you're on. Hi. Um, can you hear me? I can, just fine. Okay. Uh, I'm removing the expletives first. <laughs> and it's like, how dare they even... This is medical information that should be used and only used for medical advancement and and positive things to help people. Uh, where you veer off and and you give it to employers and there is already not equity in workplaces. There's already discrimination that goes on. This is another tool in the hands of the employer against the employee. Um, And and it's appalling. Mm -hmm. And we don't even need to look towards China and let's say even some other regime oriented uh, countries and governments right here in good old US of A, they are have already take criminalized women for wanting to be able to control their bodies and they demonize and criminalize the doctors, friends, nurses, or whoever that assists them. This is in America today. This surveillance here. 
Yeah. Well, well Suzanne, yeah. I can understand yeah. why you have strong feelings. And I'd love to hear more from you, Nita, about what you mean by a call or a demand for, for cognitive liberty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, first I'll say the employment setting, I, I agree. You know, my, my sister is an employment discrimination attorney. And I I noticed early on as I started talking about the book and, and the concepts in it that the part that really touches everybody the most is the employment setting. And that's because we all work. We can all understand how it can impact us and how it can be used in really discriminatory and Orwellian ways. And so um, as I as I you know, think through both examples here in the United States and, and worldwide, I propose this right to cognitive liberty, which is the right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences. And what recognizing that right would do as a human right would direct our attention to updating three existing human rights. One is privacy to include explicitly a right to mental privacy. The second is freedom of thought, which has traditionally been understood to apply to freedom of religion and belief, but also should apply to prevent interference with our thoughts and manipulation or, you know, robbing us of our capacity for thought. And the last is self-determination, which has traditionally been understood as a collective political right, but also should include a right to informational self-access and a right to choose to enhance or diminish or have no use of neurotechnology. Um, I believe having that right would change the default rule so that an employer couldn't simply say you have to use this technology, but they would have to seek a legal exception under very narrowly tailored circumstances to be able to use the technology. And at that point, it could be for something like a commercial driver who's having fatigue management or fatigue monitoring, but only that is being monitored and nothing else. And they would have to establish what the reason was that that was the way that they needed to do it and why that would be less intrusive, for example, than using a camera inside of the cab of the truck at all times because the information that they'd be extracting would be so much more limited. So I think what recognizing a right at this juncture would do would be to flip things in favor of individuals to protect them against the misuse, whether it's an employment, education, government use, any of the different contexts. Do you, and maybe, it it seems like this is the kind of thing that people would rally behind, especially as you're hearing the concerns and the passions of some of our, our listeners. But do you worry that we have become inured to what we give up, how mm-hmm. much we give up, not mm-hmm. really fully being able to wrap our minds around the information and the access that people have to us, that that we might not actually rally behind, say, a mental privacy law or a right to a defined right to cognitive liberty mm-hmm. as a society. I, I worry about exactly that. I think people unwittingly have given up so much of their personal information and data and rights and freedoms. I'm hopeful that the fact that this is so intimately involved with what it means to even be human, to have a space of self-reflection, that this time it'll be different. But when I've done studies in, in my lab at looking at people's reactions to information and how personally sensitive they find information and have given people a list of things to choose and to say how sensitive they think each one is, including a bunch of things that could be taken from the brain, like um, the most challenging thoughts and images all the way down to anxiety or sleep or attention levels, 
what our lab found was that people were far more concerned about their social security number as being sensitive information than information that could be gleaned from their brains. And in example after example that I go through in the book, already there are a lot of people who are unwittingly giving up brain data for the convenience of different services or the novelty of using neurotechnology in different settings. So I do worry that people will unwittingly give up their information or not recognize the sensitivity or how it could be misused. That's oftentimes one of, I think, the challenges is, you know, people say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't care if they have access to the information. We all think bad thoughts. <laughs> we all need a space to figure out who we are in our own minds, and our own heads, and we all should be concerned about mental privacy. So I think it should be the kind of thing that hopefully we treat differently but part of the reason I'm sounding the alarm now, a big motivation for me writing this book, is to help people become informed before this becomes truly transformational in society and to get out ahead of it for once, to really try to define it in our own terms for once. Yeah, we're coming up on a break, but I, I do want to ask you if you want to say just a few words about how important a private inner world is, like our brain. Mm hmm, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think it is critical to human flourishing, just the space to be able to figure out who you are, whether that is in the earliest informative years, trying to understand your own um, gender identity or sexual orientation or figuring out um, if you're in a repressive regime, you know, that you disagree with the propaganda and you want to rise up against it or things as simple as you think you have a new idea, but you want to play it over in your mind before you say it out loud. There's so much to the inner world and the inner space that we have that is fundamental to what it means to be human, and it is worth protecting. Nita Farahani's book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. And we'll have more with her and you, our listeners, after the break. I see your calls and comments, and we'll get to much more of them right after this. Again, you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by emailing forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the advances in neurotechnology that allow or could allow corporations, governments to peer into our brains and minds and why we need to establish and define what Nita Farahani calls cognitive liberty. 
Nita Farahani is a professor of law and philosophy at Duke University and author of the new book, The Battle for Your Brain. You, our listeners, are with us, and let me go straight to caller Afsane in Oakland. Hi, Afsane. Um, hello there, and thank you for such a wonderful um, discussion. Uh, I have two questions. The first one is, is uh, Dr. Farahani is going to go on a book tour or lecture tour where she would uh, elaborate on these either at university or bookstores. And second, um, I know it's almost like I don't want her to be guessing this, but it seems like we are at the verge of entering a dystopian society that um, so far it seems like the technology has been used to take, like act as an outputter for information. But how far are we away from having this technology, have the ability to put thoughts in our mind uh-huh. and have us think what the big brother uh, quote unquote wants us to think and how to act. Thanks yeah. so much. I'll the, listen on the air. Thank you so much, Asane. And I mean you touch a little bit on how that can be done with the dream <laughs> the dream stuff we talked about yeah. earlier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for lack yes. of a better word. But yes. Well so for, first let me tell your listener I, I love her first name. That's my mother's first name. Aww. So it's uh it's it's nice to hear somebody else with the name Afsana. But um so first I, I will be traveling around the um country and around the world over the next few months talking about my book and uh you can check that out on my website at www.nitafarahani.com where I keep a list of those upcoming events. Um but The second half of my book is titled Hacking the Brain, and it's all about the ways in which the technologies can not only be used in ways that listen or decode or track, but also can change what's happening inside of the brain, again, for good and for bad. So um, there are examples, for example, of a, a woman who was suffering from depression that she described as being terminal, that she had tried every kind of treatment possible, but there was no, uh, it wasn't moving, it wasn't shifting the needle at all. And the researchers were able to essentially trace the patterns of electric, electrical activity when she was the most symptomatic and use electrical stimulation to interrupt those signals and give her the ability through something like a pacemaker in the brain to regain her life. She now experiences um, a typical range of emotions and that's been transformational for her. Uh, There are also, of course, negative ways that brains can be manipulated from trying to addict people to technology to hacking into our brain heuristics as ways to, uh, you know, make us use our brain shortcuts to bypass our thinking that can be detrimental or even scarier is uh, the shift in focus Uh, toward what has been called the sixth domain of warfare or the human domain to try to attack the brain through the development of so-called brain weapons. And while those, you know, may never materialize or might be early in development, just the very idea that that is a focus of countries to try to develop precise technology to disrupt or disorient people's brains is terrifying. Yes, it is terrifying. (laughs) Well, this listener writes, I drive heavy trucks, and they are equipped with cameras that are directed at the road as well as at the driver. Mm -hmm. It's it's sometimes unnerving or uncomfortable, but nonetheless part of the employer's prerogative. I've learned to live with them. Unfortunately, one of today's realities, again, talking a little bit about the slope that we are on. Another listener writes, how close are we to a universal lie detector? Mm -hmm. What are the social implications when lying is no longer possible? 
do you want to talk a little bit about how police or entities look at our brains to determine whether or not we may be telling the truth with regard to something that happened or a crime? If you want me to make people even more uncomfortable, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can do that. But um, So I mentioned earlier in the show that you know, these technologies, while they can't literally decode your mind, they can be used to probe the brain for information. And there um, are a couple of techniques which have been developed to do so. One is cumbersome based on large functional magnetic resonance imaging with kind of questionable results. Another one that is actually being used by a lot of law enforcement worldwide um, is called brain fingerprinting technology. And, and what this tries to do is there are pre-conscious signals that your brain has before you're even consciously aware of something. So you see an image, for example, of uh, a loved one, and your brain um, registers recognition of that image before you're even consciously aware of doing so yourself. And that fact, these kind of pre-conscious signals or evoked response potentials is what they're called, um, has been used in law enforcement uh, where going through, for example, a police file where there's information that the general public shouldn't know about, that only somebody who was at the crime scene or involved in the crime or the you know, murderer themselves would know about, like uh, a unique weapon or some uh, picture of what things looked like at the crime scene. And then showing a person while they're wearing um, you know, simple electroencephalography or EEG devices, these different images, and then seeing if the brain recognizes the information that it shouldn't recognize unless it you know, unless the person is guilty or associated or affiliated with it. Right. And that's been used everywhere from India to um, Australia to Dubai. And even here in the United States, mostly by criminal defendants offering it as an alibi themselves. But even, you know, by police officers who have uh, asked defendants to voluntarily submit the information who say like, oh, I have nothing to hide. And then their brain reveals recognition of it. So, you know, it's it's not foolproof by any stretch of the imagination. There are other techniques that are being developed based on different signals in the brain um, of like two pieces of information go together. That's called congruence or two pieces of information or a mismatch that's incongruence. And so you could ask a person like, you know, dead body or body lake, body bedroom, if you're trying to figure out where the body is hidden, for example, and look at these evoked responses in the brain. And a lot of countries, and uh, including the United States through our DARPA programs, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, have invested a lot in that technology. So we're not, we're not there on tr like true lie detection, but these are proxies of information in the brain that are already in use worldwide. Well, Nita, I'd be curious to get your response to this listener who writes, how long before we're forced to decide if we need these neuro-augmentation devices or programs? Those without will be at a high disadvantage. We are near a scary precipice in human development. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at technology generally, especially for transformative technologies, there often is a period of inequitable distribution of those technologies in ways that really can widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And that's true for everything from, you know, cell phones to the recent um, rolling out of all of these generative AI tools. Neurotechnology and cognitive enhancers, this is a debate that has been going on for quite a long time. You see, you know, prevalent use of cognitive enhancers like ADHD drugs, for example, on college campuses. 
Um, and there have been attempts to kind of uh, clamp down on that use by restricting it by saying, you know, if you if you use it without a prescription, then it's cheating. I think the problem with that approach is that that means the haves who can get access to a doctor who will say that they have ADHD, even if they don't, to prescribe them the drugs are the ones who get access to it. And the ones who don't have that kind of access are the ones who don't. I'm more in favor of looking at cognitive enhancing tools as not a zero sum. If I improve my mental performance and you, Mina, improve your mental performance, it doesn't trade off with each other. And so really the question I don't think is whether these are cheating or not cheating. Um, It's not about haves or have nots. It's how, if we think these really do benefit humanity and enable people to flourish, how do we create a system where there is greater access and um, you know, more equity in the ability to use the technologies if people choose to do so. Yeah, so people freely choose to do so. Um, well, let me go to caller Noah in San Francisco. Hi, Noah. Thanks for waiting. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I want to uh, just take a look back at history and encourage folks who are listening to check out the BBC documentary, The Century of the Self by Adam Curtis. It's free. Um, And it goes into the history of behavioral advertising in the United States, which actually started a long time ago. Um, There's a guy named Ed Bernays, who I believe was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who tried to start applying some of those kind of psychoanalytic ideas to uh, American advertising and business. And he, for instance, was one of the people who figured out people don't buy products based on the merits of the product. They buy products based on who they want to be and the image of the person you show them in the ad. And so the point here is that, you know, this technological advance is really scary to people because they feel like they can no longer hide behind their own skull. But, you know, corporations, you know, advertisers have been peering inside your brain from the outside for a long time. This is a new tool to help them get even deeper in there. But I think this should really spark a broader conversation about advertising itself and the way that advertisers use manipulative techniques to make people feel bad, to make people feel insufficient so that they then go spend money they don't have on products they don't need. Well, Noah, thanks. I, I know, Nita, that you have thoughts I on have this. thoughts. <laughs> I do. I have thoughts. I have many thoughts about this. So first, Noah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. This is a book which is written to help people understand the coming age of neurotechnology, but is much broader than neurotechnology. And yes. what Noah's hitting on is... Um, you know, I discuss in depth in a chapter called Mental Manipulation, which looks at everything from traditional advertising techniques um, to neuromarketing techniques to the use of clickbait headlines and um, the, you know, attempts to develop increasingly sophisticated uh, features and technology that try to bring us habitually back to the platforms over and again. And one of the hardest things, I think, for us societally to decide collectively is, what is the line between persuasion and manipulation and and where do we draw it? And I offer an approach in that chapter that says like, look, we've based a lot of our conversation about this to date and laws and regulations on really an outdated model of the human brain as if there's a difference between, you know, subconscious and unconscious minds when most of this is right out in the open. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's trying to override our, um, you know, ability to think slowly. It's trying to override our ability to act otherwise. And that we need to start identifying those practices and cognitive liberty, as I propose it and conceive of it here, 
really would safeguard us against mental manipulation across so many categories that go well beyond what neurotechnology introduces. We're talking with Nita Farahani, bioethicist and professor of law and philosophy at Duke University, about her new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to Rafael in Newark. Hey, Rafael. Am I saying your name right there? Hi. Yes, you did. Thank you very much for taking my call. You know, this whole topic has... um, Minority Report written all over it. <laughs> yes. And, and it scares me in, in that sense because, you know, you uh, the gentleman before was talking about uh, the sensory itself, and it's like it just seems like this is a migration to it all, and nobody's giving, you know, it any thought mm. to the point of what could really, really happen because new technologies, um, just like... Um, you know, new technologies like I believe Pegasus, you know, was 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 that initially you know brought out, you know, talked about the good stuff, and now they're, you know, they're using it to spy on, um, like you know, they used it on Merkel's phone, et cetera, and it just seems like it's it's you know yeah. we're delving too much, you know, we're we're making our we're making our ourselves machines instead of being human. Well, thanks for your your thoughts, Rafael. And well, Pete is wondering, I guess, if there's a way that we can use the advances against the neurotechnology. Pete tweets, people have been psychologically manipulated for decades, and perhaps this tech can help inquiring minds develop better defenses against this. Think Mm -hmm. of an iWatch app that tells you your brain is being hacked. Right. I I mean, I, you know, first of all, I I love trying to think about privacy by design, um, you know, designing in features or using technology to alert us to features. I think it's not alone sufficient, but um, it's certainly a, a possibility. And one of the things I, I talk about in the chapter of, in mental manipulation are, are things individuals can do to safeguard themselves about that. And there's an excerpt of that chapter in Wired Magazine this week. And, you know, I lay out some of the things that people can do um, to both slow down in their thinking, to recognize when they're being manipulated and ways in which they can try to safeguard against you know, their cognitive biases or their cognitive heuristics being tapped into and misused against them. And so I think, you know, I, I love the idea of like, could we, could we map the pattern that would show manipulation? I think that might be tricky just in, in thinking about what that is, right? But maybe you can get alert an alert, like on Twitter, you get an alert saying like, are you sure you want to share this without reading it first? <laughs> um, you know, maybe you get an alert that says like, you saw through that really quickly. Are you sure you want to respond yet without, <laughs> without taking a little bit more time to reflect? So <laughs> yeah. Well, this listener writes, does Nita see a barter system as in you can watch my brain, but I get something from you? Mm. Uh, that would be a nice thought. But as you were talking earlier about power differentials, uh, it would be hard to, to see. I mean, people are doing that strength. already, you know, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's all kinds of subjects who, uh, research subjects who participate in neuromarketing studies. So they put on 
um, EEG headsets or earbuds or headphones, and they watch different advertising spots or uh, cinema trailers or movie scenes. And um, all the while, they're they're selling access to their brain data for those corporations to look at and to try to improve their marketing tactics or make their movie uh, movie trailers more compelling or the movie scenes scarier or you know happier or whatever they're trying to optimize for. So I. I I imagine that um, people will get to the place of bartering. I also imagine that if you owned your own brain data, if cognitive liberty gave you the right, a default rule where the data was your own, that some people may choose to sell it to researchers or to scientists to study uh, to see if they can solve some of the biggest problems in neurological disease and, and mental illness. Um, so, I, you know, it's a world I could imagine. I'm not opposed to sharing brain data. I'm opposed to it being taken from people without their consent and their knowledge and without thinking about doing so. Yeah. Well, before we leave everyone feeling like we face a very dystopian <laughs> future, <laughs> um, is there anything that you want to say about the time we're in now? You had yeah. touched on some of the agency that we have, but yeah. You know, I think a lot of a lot of people react to hearing about this technology for the first time, and they think, "Okay, just keep that away from me. Let's ban it." Um, and I, I just want to like emphasize for for everyone: our physical health is improving, while our mental health is not. Um, longevity is increasing, while mental illness and neurological disease remains so unsolved, so unaddressed in society. And if giving people access to their own brain information and data could enable us to make major breakthroughs in all of that, to start to treat our brain health and wellness as seriously, if not more seriously, than we treat all of the rest of our physical health, that could be extraordinary for humanity. The question is, how do we strike the balance so that those empowering effects of neurotechnology or what we realize. And I think if people come to the table and the conversation, participate knowing the risks and benefits, it's achievable. Duke Law Professor Nita Farahani, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The battle for your brain, defending the right to think freely in the age of neurotechnology is Nita Farahani's book. Thanks, listeners, for sharing your thoughts, questions, and experiences. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. This Hour Forum is also produced by Caroline Smith, Rachel Vasquez, Grace Wan, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, and Christopher Beal. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin-Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya! How?! 
You'll left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.